We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 together this morning. And as you're turning to Colossians chapter 1, I want to acknowledge a few special guests who are here with this morning, and uh, that is the Vaca family. Vacas, where are you? Just raise your hand or shout out to me. Right there. And so let's welcome the Vaca family uh, with us this morning. And uh, Paul Michael and his wife Katie and their children, uh, Paul Michael pastors First Baptist Church of Liberty City, not too far uh, from here, but a fellow Criswell College graduate and uh, good brother in ministry, so we're so glad to welcome you guys and, and so thankful that you're worshiping with us this morning, and sorry for embarrassing you, but we're glad that you're here. Well, we're in Colossians chapter 1 this morning, and the theme of Colossians 1 is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's really the theme of the entire book of Colossians. Paul is addressing a church that is undergoing some uh, threatening heresies, some doctrinal errors that have slipped into the church, and that can happen to any church at any time. A doctrinal error can threaten the health of the church. And this kind of doctrinal error error was one that dethroned Jesus. It it sought to demote him. It gave him a a place, but not supreme place. And so Paul is writing to address that, and he writes about the fact that Jesus is the center, that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is Lord. And that's really the theme of Colossians chapter 1. He's been talking about that in in colossal ways. He's been talking about the uh, cosmic realities that are true of Jesus' lordship, that Jesus is Lord over creation that he is Lord over uh, uh, the church, that he is Lord over the the work of the cross. And as you come to the end of Colossians chapter 1, the very last paragraph, uh, Paul begins to personalize the lordship of Christ to his own life and ministry. And he's going to teach us that Jesus is is Lord of his life, uh, Lord of his ministry. And he's going to show us what it looks like to live a life and have a ministry where Jesus is large and in charge. What does it look like to do life and ministry when Jesus is, is Lord? And so this last paragraph of Colossians chapter 1 is very instructive for us because it teaches us how to have a rightly ordered life and ministry, how to prioritize the right kinds of things in our, in our life and ministry. I heard Gary Thomas tell the story about a man who was climbing his very first 14,000-foot mountain. He'd never done it before, and so he spent a lot of time preparing. He bought all the right gear. He took practice hikes, and he got ready. And finally, the day, day of his hike arrived, and so he gets to the foot of a mountain, and he begins to climb, and it's difficult. And and uh, he's just focusing on his breathing and focusing on, on uh, using his body the right way so that he doesn't get exhausted and takes a couple of days to finally get to the top of this mountain. And for the first time, he just takes a moment once he gets to the top to kind of look around and he realizes he climbed the wrong mountain. He was so preoccupied with other things that he missed the right mountain. And I'm afraid that many spend their life devoted to the wrong things, prioritizing the wrong priorities, climbing the wrong mountains. And folks, that can even happen among pastors and ministers of the gospel. There are many pastors who are climbing the wrong mountain in their ministry. The truth is the, the state of the pastorate in America today is in, in many cases unhealthy. Eugene Peterson, who many, many years was a Presbyterian pastor, he said this about the state of pastoral ministry in America today. Listen, 
He said the pastors of America have changed into a company of shopkeepers, and the shops they keep are churches. They are preoccupied with shopkeepers' concerns, how to keep the customers happy, how to lure customers away from competitors down the street, how to package the goods. He says, we're concerned with our image and standing, with what we can measure, with what produces successful church building programs and impressive attendance charts, with sociological impact and economic viability. The great Catholic novelist Flannery O'Connor said that today's modern pastor is one part minister and three parts masseuse. Will Williman, the Methodist uh, chaplain of Duke, said that many churches have a set of expectations for their pastors that are foreign to Scripture. Some of those expectations include that the pastor will have the skills of a media star, a political negotiator, a therapist, a manager, and a resident activist. Let me ask you, what does faithful ministry look like when it is shaped by the lordship of Jesus rather than shopkeepers' concerns? Well, that's what Paul is addressing in the last paragraph of Colossians chapter 1, and he really gives us four goalposts for faithful ministry. And that's important to talk about today, right now, because you have a fairly new pastor who has just arrived. I feel like I've been here five years, but it's only been a couple of months And so, there's a real question. What should you expect of me? What should you expect of the other pastors who serve Moberly? What should you expect of our ministerial staff who serve here at at Moberly? What is a framework for understanding what faithfulness in ministry actually looks like? Well, we're going to see it here in the text. I want to give you four things that Paul addresses. Here's the first one. Paul is going to teach us in Colossians chapter 1 that faithful ministers serve the church. If you think about what makes for faithful ministry or a faithful minister, a faithful minister is someone who seeks to serve the church. Look what he says in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you. A servant is a fitting word for a pastor. Jesus, who's the chief shepherd of the church, viewed himself as a servant. In fact, in Mark's gospel, he says, I I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And that provides a model for how pastors should think of themselves. Pastors are not those who come to a church in order for the church to serve them, but for them to serve the church. And that's an important corrective for how pastoral ministry is viewed in our modern age because so many pastors adopt the mantra or the mentality of being a a, a CEO. But Scripture teaches us that faithful pastors are not CEOs, they are servants, amen? And certainly in a church as large as Moberly, there are administrative skills that you have and that kind of thing. But the, the metaphor, the model that we should embrace as pastors is the model of servant. And that is what Paul's talking about here in these two verses. Now, I want you to notice a couple of words that he uses here that helps us understand what it means to be a servant of the church. 
The first word I want to draw your attention to is the word suffering. You notice it there in verse 24. We talked about this last week, but I want to come back to this. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Paul understood that the call to ministry is a call sometimes to suffer. And Paul certainly suffered in the course of his ministry. Think about the way, for instance, he describes his ministry in 2 Corinthians and chapter 11. Uh, in, in verses 24 through 27, he describes his ministry. He says, five times I received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, uh, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food or cold and without clothing, not to mention other things. There is the daily pressure on me, which is my burden for the churches or my concern for the churches. Now, that sounds like your best life now, doesn't it? I mean, what exactly did Paul sign up for? Well, he signed up to serve the church as one who is willing to suffer for the church. Paul understood that ministry is not always easy, but he was called to be willing to endure when ministry was tough because Jesus was worth it. Folks, that's true in each and every one of our lives. No matter what your vocation or calling is, it is worth suffering faithfully. It is worth enduring hardship because we realize that Jesus is worth it. And Paul understood that about his ministry. He understood that ministry is not always easy. Ministry is not always glamorous. Um, every summer when I have a pastoral intern, I always love to have an intern over the summer and be able to just invest in them. They're looking ahead to a life of ministry and thinking about what it's going to be like. And over the last several years, the Lord has entrusted me to lead large churches. And so there are large buildings and lots of people and that kind of thing. And so interns, I think, sometimes have this idea that they're going to step into ministry and it's just going to be glamorous. And so to uh, disavow them from that view, on day one, if you're an intern with me, I have you clean every bathroom in the church because I want interns to really understand the work that God has called us to and the work that God has called pastors and ministers to is a work that is done on our knees with a towel and a basin, serving God's people, being willing to endure hardship, and it's not always glamorous. The, the, the bathroom is a metaphor. Amen, Paul Michael? It's a metaphor. And so I tell them, go, go clean the bathrooms, all of them, and, and then I say, Selah. You know what Selah is in the Psalms? It means think about it, right? Go clean the bathrooms and think about it because this is what God is calling us into if we're serving the church. We're called to endure hardship, and it's not always glamorous. So suffering. Notice the second word he uses is the word serving. He says, I have been, I've become its servant. That's a repetition from verse 23 where he talks about being called as a servant of the gospel. Now he says, I'm a servant of the church. And the word that he uses for servant here is the word uh, that we translate in other parts of the New Testament, deacon. And that's an interesting choice of words that Paul uses here. Of course, you know why, uh, why God gave deacons to the church in Acts chapter 6. There were widows who were being neglected in, in the daily feeding tables were being served, and there were some widows who were being missed. And so the church appoints a group of deacons, a, a group of 
servants to take care of the needs of the, of the widows. They were literally called to serve tables. That's what a deacon is, someone who serves a table. And that's the word that Paul uses here himself. In other words, Paul didn't view himself as the one seated at the table to be served. Paul understood himself as a, a deacon, a servant, someone who waits on others, who waits tables. He understood that Jesus is the main course. And his job was to get Jesus to people by serving them as a waiter. A, an entitled pastor is a contradiction in terms. There is no such thing as entitlement in faithful ministry. Faithful ministers are not coming to be served and have all of their needs met, but to serve others, to wait tables, to, to serve. There's a posture of service here. And then the third word that he uses here is the word steward. Notice it right there in verse 25. I've become the church's servant according to God's commission. That word for commission is a word we translate elsewhere as stewardship. It, it means to be a steward over a house. So one commentator said it refers to the responsibility, authority, and obligation given to a household slave. Now, you know what a steward is. A steward is someone who manages something on someone else's behalf. Right? And there's a sense in which every single person in this room is a steward. God has entrusted to you certain things to manage on his behalf. God owns all of it. The earth is the Lord's, the psalmist tells us, and everything in it. And so your house is not your house. It's God's house. And he's entrusted it to you to manage well, to manage faithfully, to steward on his behalf. Your car is not your car. God has entrusted his car to you to steward faithfully. Your finances are not your finances. They're God's finances, and he's entrusted them to you to be a faithful manager of what belongs to him. Your time, your gifting, your talents, those are not yours to be used for you. They're God's to be used for God. And he's entrusted all of us with a stewardship, including pastors. And this is an important word to think about, what call, pastors are called to do, because pastors are called to steward the church that belongs to God. And I think that's an important way to frame how we think about the church. It's very common for us, all of us, to say my church or our church. And there's something very admirable and virtuous when we say that because it implies that we love our church, right? We, we, there's an ownership to our church. This is where, where we are gathering with God's people. So we say my church. But let me just caution us all to be careful with our pronoun use. It is his church. Jesus said this about himself in Matthew chapter 16. He says, I will build my church. And it's very important for pastors and ministers to remember that the church doesn't belong to us, it belongs to him. It's God's church, and we are entrusted for a period of time the responsibility of stewarding what belongs to God. And that is a heavy and weighty responsibility. It's one that I take very seriously. I want to steward well in whatever time that the Lord entrusts me to serve here at Marley. I want to steward that faithfully. And I want to remind myself that I am an under-shepherd and he is the chief shepherd. And it's not my church, it's his church. So I want, to, I want to steward it carefully. If I give you my car keys, I hope that you'll drive it more carefully than your own car. Because it's not yours. If, if you are driving something that doesn't belong to you, but it's been entrusted to you, you're going to be very careful with it. And so faithful ministry looks like pastors who realize this is God's. We want to carefully steward this. And we want to re remind ourselves, I want to remind myself, our pastors and ministers need to remind ourselves 
this ministry belongs to the Lord, and we want to faithfully steward and remind ourselves that we are temporary stewards. You know, in a very real sense, every pastor is an interim pastor. Now, that interim may be over the course of years, but we're all interim pastors. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He'll always be Lord of the church. I'll be your pastor for a period of time, however long the Lord entrusts. You know, at probably 50 years, we'll see. Uh, but I don't know. That's in the Lord's hands, right? But I'm a temporary steward. How many of you enjoy uh, Lord of the Rings? Anybody willing to admit that you're a nerd today? Okay, five of you. Um, you've, you've maybe read the books or you've seen the movie uh, Lord of the Rings. You remember that in the kingdom of Gondor, there is a temporary steward who has been entrusted to lead the kingdom of Gondor for a period of time until the true king returns and occupies his rightful place on the throne, Aragorn, right? The problem is, is that that temporary steward forgets that he's a temporary steward. He begins to think that he's really the king. He forgets that he was just a temporary manager of what belonged to another king. And folks, that's how pastors should view their role. We, we ought to not confuse who belongs on the throne. It's Jesus it is Jesus who is the chief shepherd. We are stewards of the ministry. That's what it means to be a servant of the church. Amen? So here's the second thing. Paul says faithful ministers serve the church, but here's the second thing he teaches us in verses 25 through 28. He teaches us that faithful ministers proclaim Jesus. Faithful ministers proclaim Jesus. Look at what he says in verses 25 and following. He says, I've become a servant of the church according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. Just circle that or underline it. What Word of God? Well, it's the mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. What's the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so, verse 28, we proclaim Him. Circle that, underline that, mark that. We proclaim Him. Him, Jesus, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Paul understood that faithful ministers proclaim Jesus, that Jesus is the focus and the content of our proclamation. As we are entrusted with the responsibility of making the Word of God known, our job as, as ministers is to show you from the Word of God how it all points to Jesus. Um, I was reminded this week of a, 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 of a great book by Henry Nouwen where he talks about temptations that face pastors, and he lists a few of them, but, but two of them caught my interest. He said pastors are tempted to be relevant and to be spectacular. Tempted to be relevant and spectacular. And so they do all kinds of goofy things to be relevant, and to be spectacular. And then they have to try harder next week because if it wowed you on week one, they got to do something to wow you on week two. And whatever they get you with, they keep you with, right? And so there's just this pressure to be relevant and to be spectacular. Notice the contrast of how Paul viewed his ministry. He didn't seek to be relevant or spectacular. Instead, two statements here. He sought to make the Word of God fully known and to proclaim Jesus. And I would say that those are pretty good goalposts for what faithful ministry looks like, to make the Word of God fully known and to proclaim Jesus. And I want you to know that is what I am committed to do here. 
And it may not always be spectacular. That's okay. But it's what you need. It's what I need. We need to see Jesus through his word. And and, and that's not always popular. Notice what Paul says here. He says he does this by warning and by teaching. And in our day and time, warning is not popular. Can I get a witness? Warning is where a pastor is called to say, hey, this is what a life far from God looks like. This is where not following Jesus will lead you. That's warning. And that's not popular because we don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to be told about the consequences of our actions. But Paul says, part of my making God's word known to you is warning you. The other part is teaching you, instructing you. So Paul says, listen, I want you to see the word of God. I want you to see Jesus in the word of God. And I'm not focused on being relevant or spectacular. And I just want you to know, folks, my job is not to entertain you. It's not. I can't devote my time and energy to entertaining you. You know, and there's lots of ways that you can do that. And I just want you to know, I want to set up the expectation here as we're in these early days of my ministry. If you come to me and say, Pastor, it'd be awesome if you do a summer sermon series where you like do summer in the movies. So you take a, a movie that's out in the theaters and you take a movie and each movie sets the theme of the sermon. You do a whole summer in the movie. Folks, I'm not going to do that because I'm not here to entertain you. Um, yeah, okay, you can be excited about that, yeah. Um, you know, you, you've, you've heard of pastors who preach about marriage from a bed. I'm not going to do that. All right, why? Because my job is not to entertain you. It's not to be relevant or to be spectacular. It's to make the word of God fully known and to proclaim Christ. Life is too short and too serious to waste your time giving you anything less than the word of God and showing you how Jesus is the center of scripture. That's what it's all about. Jesus at the center of scripture was the content of Paul's message. I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Listen to Sally. She says, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you do. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people that you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make very big mistakes and sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and they run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. Paul's aim was to teach the churches that he served how to read the Bible rightly, which was not to see themselves at the center of it, but Jesus at the center of it. That's how we ought to read Scripture. It's not about how this is going to uh, 
provide a model for how I should live, although there are certainly aspects of that in Scripture. Primarily, Scripture is about what Jesus has done for us. And every story in Scripture points to Him. And so that frames the way we read the Bible, right? When you read about Adam, you're not just reading about Adam, the one who disobeyed and was unrighteous and brought death into the world. You are also thinking about the second Adam, Jesus, who perfectly obeyed God and was righteous and brought not death but life into the world. When you read about Noah, you're not just thinking about Noah and the ark that rescued a family. You're you're thinking about Jesus who is a better Noah who provides an ark of rescue for all of God's people. When when you read about Abraham, you're not just thinking about Abraham that God, God used him to bring blessing to a nation. You're thinking about Jesus, the son of Abraham, who blesses all of the nations. When you read the Bible, you're not just thinking about Moses who led God's people in deliverance out of Egypt. You're thinking about Jesus, the truer, better, greater Moses who brings all of his people out of slavery and bondage to sin and delivers them. When you read about David, you're not just thinking about a David who ruled on the throne of Israel. You're thinking about Jesus, the son of David, the greater king who rules over all of the earth. And you begin to read the Bible this way, you see every page points to Jesus, And that's the job of a a faithful minister, to take the Word of God, open it up week by week, and show you how it points to Him and what He's done. Amen? And so Paul says, we proclaim Him. We proclaim Him. His message, his theology was captured in this single statement. He gives it to us right there in verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says, this is a mystery that's been hidden for for a long time, but now it's been revealed. Now you get to see God's big secret. And God's big secret is that Christ can be in you the hope of glory. Paul understood that God created us for glory in the garden, and yet we fell short of the glory of God through our sin. And yet because God loves us, he sent his son who is glorious to reveal the glory of God through his work on the cross and the resurrection so that all of us who turn from our sin and put our trust in Jesus can now have the hope of glory. And we know there's more to the story, right? Because Jesus is one one day going to return. He's going to make all things glorious. And Paul says all of that is summed up in this one simple statement, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that was the content and the focus of his message. Amen? If you've never seen Jesus as the one who can bring you the hope of glory, I hope that you'll see that today. Paul's message focused on Jesus was also a message that was proclaimed to everyone. This is not just a message for religious people or churchy people. It's a message for everyone. Notice how Paul describes it in verse 27. He says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. In other words, Paul's message was not just that Christ is for some people, but that Christ is for all people. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, rich or poor, you can know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that's a good word of hope. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I don't have a religious background. This is maybe even my first time in church. I want you to know there's hope for you today. You can know Jesus. You can have hope of the glory of God in your own life. If you walk up to Walmart after church, go pick up some fried chicken or something, you walk up to that, that door, that front door, and there's an automatic door. If you walk up to it, it will open for you no matter who you are. If you're tall or if you're short, if you walk up to the door, it will open for you. If you have hair like Elvis Presley 
or you're follically challenged, if you walk up to that door, it will open for you. If you are educated or uneducated, as long as you walk up to the door, it'll open for you. If you're rich or poor, you walk up to the door, it'll open. If you're Republican or Democrat, if you walk up to that door, it'll open for you as long as you walk up to the door. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you're willing to come to Jesus, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you're from. It doesn't matter if you were born in a church or you've never been in a church before. Christ can be in you, the hope of glory. And that is the focus and the content of faithful ministry. Amen? Here's the third thing. Faithful ministers... So we're thinking about the goalposts for faithful ministry. Faithful ministers focus on the spiritual maturity of the flock. Faithful ministers focus on the spiritual maturity of the flock. What should be our focus? What should be our aim as a church? Look at what Paul says in verse 28. He says, we proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that, here's a purpose statement. This is why Paul is doing this so that we may present everyone, let's say it together, mature in Christ. Folks, that is the end zone. That is what we are driving toward. That is the aim and purpose of why we exist as a church, is to present people mature in Christ, to help people know Christ and grow in Christ. And that's a very different aim from what many pastors and ministers are sold as a bill of goods out there in the, the church culture. Uh, almost every week, I will get an email from a so-called church consultant. And that church consultant will peddle their wares with a flashy subject line like, the secret to growing a large church you open it up and it's like, buy our LED screens, something like that. <laughs> Get the LED screen and your church will grow large. And that is, that is a focus out there in the culture, that successful ministry equals numerical growth. And I want to tell you that that is, that is wrong. If the Lord brings numerical growth to a church, that's great, but that's not the aim. That is not the goal. Growth is the goal, but not numerical growth, spiritual growth. That's what Paul says, my aim, I do all of these things so that I can present everyone mature in Christ. And I want you know, to know that that's how I want to lead this church. I want everything at Moberly Baptist Church to be laser focused on helping people grow and mature in their relationship with Christ. Maturing in your walk with Christ means that you go deep with Christ, that you're not satisfied to be a snorkel Christian. You know what a snorkel Christian is, right? If you've ever been snorkeling, snorkel, you, you, you skim the surface of the water. You, you put on your goggles and you snorkel around and you look down every now and then see a shark. You look back up and you just kind of skim the surface and then you get out. And so many believers are content to snorkel their way through the Christian life. They just kind of skim the surface. There's a surface level Christianity. I want to help you become a scuba Christian to go deep, to, to grow roots, to say, I, I'm not content with a surface-level walk with Jesus. I want to grow mature in my walk with Christ. That was the aim for the Apostle Paul. Faithful ministers focus on the spiritual maturity of the flock. That's why we want you to engage in weekly worship. 
So why is it important to come to church every week? Because it's going to help you mature in Christ. You're going to hear the Word of God systematically explained. You're going to sing praises to Jesus. You're going to pray with other believers. You're going to know other believers and be known by them. You're going to fellowship with God's people. All of that helps you grow in your walk with Christ. It's why we want you to do discipleship in community and be part of a connect group, not just to be part of a crowd, but be part of a community where you can do life with other believers and they can sharpen you in your walk with Christ. It's why we want you to find a way to serve here because that's going to be part of how you mature in your walk with Christ. It's, it's, it's why I'm not going to preach a summer in the movies series. It's, it's why I preach through books of the Bible. Why would I do that? Because I want to help you mature in your walk with Christ. And so I'm going to preach through books of the Bible because God's Word is how God's Spirit speaks to God's people. And so we're going to talk about some tough texts from time to time. You will hear me preach genealogies from time to time. Everybody's favorite section of Scripture, right? Genealogies. You read a genealogy, you're like, what? What? <laughs> what, what, what does God have for me in this? All the begats. What's, what does it have to do with my life? Well, we'll talk about that. We'll go through books of the Old Testament. There's a whole wing of evangelicalism today that says the Old Testament is irrelevant. You'll hear well-known pastors say that we should unhitch from the Old Testament, which is an old heresy, by the way. All of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation is Scripture, and it's relevant for our life, and it points us to Christ and what He's done. And so there will be times when we go through obscure Old Testament books, and you're going to leave that book saying, I know Jesus better because we were in Habakkuk. We'll go through tough books like Romans and eventually Revelation. We'll get there. Why would I do that as a pastor? Because my job is not to entertain you. It is to help you grow. Our role as a church family is not to be relevant and spectacular. It is to help people grow. Amen? So we'll talk about the Word. We'll talk about theology. I will not Gerber baby food spoon feed you. I will not put the cookies on the lowest shelf. I will use big words from time to time, and I'll do the very best I can to explain what they mean and explain why they matter for your life, because I believe you can handle it. Amen? You can handle it. Your kids can handle it, right? When you hear the pastor use a word like justification or hypostatic union, you say, oh, that's such a hard word. If your kids can learn trigonometry, they can learn theology. And you can handle it. And so we're going to go there. We're going to talk about things that are, are maybe not immediately relevant, not immediately obvious as to why it matters, but we'll go there and explain why that matters, right? Because I want to give you something to dig into. I want you to chew on some stuff. I don't want to just give you milk. I want to give you a juicy steak. So grab your knife and fork, pull up to the table. We're going to go there, amen? Why? Because faithful ministry is about focusing on the spiritual maturity of the flock. It's why I'm going to call you to live out your, your theology, to develop a prayer life, to live in obedience to King Jesus, to live like you know the Word. Why? Because it's about your spiritual growth. Here's the fourth and final thing. 
Paul says faithful ministers serve the church, they proclaim Jesus, they focus on the spiritual maturity of the flock. Just fourth and finally, faithful ministers depend on God's resources rather than their own. It's a temptation as a pastor to develop a savior complex, to try to know everything, be everywhere, fix everything, and to be for you what truly only Jesus can be, and to rely on our own strengths and giftings and power and resources and knowledge and know-how. And that is a satanic temptation, folks, because when a pastor does that, he takes the place that only one should hold, and that's Jesus. Only Jesus knows it all. Only Jesus can be everywhere. Only Jesus can fix everything. Only Jesus has the resources and the power and the strength and the knowledge and the know-how that we need. And it would be a fatal mistake for me as a new pastor to come in as a savior for the church and say, you know what? I have what it takes. I know it all. Follow me. I've got everything you need. Folks, there will be times that you hear me say, I don't know. You know why I'll say that? Because I don't know. I don't always know. I don't always have the answer. I don't always know the direction that we should go. I don't always have the resources. I, I have some resources. I have some strengths. I have some gifts just like you do. Everyone in this room represents some resources, some strengths, and some gifts. But folks, I don't want what I can do. I want what God can do. And, and our church, we shouldn't want what you can do. We should want what God can do. I would love to climb the mountain and at the end of the day say something happened at Marberly Baptist Church. It could not be explained by any one person's gifting or a group of people's gifting, only by the power of God. And Paul understood that. Look at what he says in the very last verse of the paragraph, verse 29. He says, I labor for this, for this. This means everything he's been describing. But notice the means through which he labors. Striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Paul understood it wasn't his, Paul's strength. It was Christ's strength. Literally, you could translate this, his power that works powerfully. <laughs> I want that in my life, don't you? God's power that works powerfully. Paul said, my ministry is not going to be based on my resources and my power. It's going to be dependent on God's resources and God's power. Folks, that's why prayer is so important. Because prayer is when you acknowledge, I don't have what it takes, but God does. It's why we will pray together as a church. It's why I'll call you to seasons of prayer. In 2023, we're going to have some opportunities to pray together in some unique ways. We'll kick off 2023, and you'll hear more about this, but a 21-day prayer emphasis. And then throughout 2023, we're going to be gathering on Sunday nights once a month to pray together and to go and share the gospel together. And there will be other seasons in the life of our church where you are called to pray. Why do we do that? Because we are called to depend on God's resources and not our own resources. Not self-dependency. And that, it's as fatal for a pastor as it is for a church member to say, I've got what it takes. We all in humility have to say, we don't always know the answer. We don't always have what it takes, but God does. And so we're going to rely completely on his resources that we don't have but that we need. Amy and I, when we were uh, in our early dating life, we were going to college in Dallas, and I decided I was going to take Amy on a fancy date. 
And so a friend of mine had recommended a place in Rockwall. And at the time in Rockwall, they were building this little harbor area on the lake right there. It was just under construction. But they had finished one restaurant, and that's where we were going. So I was dressed to the nines. Took Amy out. I'm driving her little Honda CRV, and we're going out there. It had been raining, and it's a little dark, and I was trying to figure out how to get to this place over on that harbor area and lots of construction and that kind of thing. And I thought I'd take a shortcut through what looked like a parking lot. Turns out it was not a parking lot. It was a field of mud. And so we, I drove that Honda right into that field of mud and just kind of skirted around a little bit, and then it came to a stop. But we were stuck. And so I did what any red-blooded American man would do. I hit the gas. And it just drove that Honda deeper into the mud. So I thought, hey, it's no problem. This is going to give me an opportunity, you know, to impress. So I hopped out of the car. It's raining. It's muddy. I'm dressed to the nines. And I thought, I'm just going to show Amy my amazing strength. I'm going to single-handedly get this Honda out of the mud. It didn't work. (laughs) I worked on that thing for probably 30 or 40 minutes until a couple of Rockwall uh, police officers showed up. They decided they would help me by giving me advice about how to get the, didn't actually help me, but they gave me advice about how to get the, the car out of the mud. And so they, they sat there telling me about, you know, hey, put this board under the wheel. I tried. It didn't work. Eventually they got bored. They left. I'll fast forward. It's a long story. I'll make the, the long story short. The next day, the car's still <laughs> stuck. I come back with my truck. And I thought, hey, I still have a chance to be the hero, redeem myself here. I'm going to hook this truck up and get Amy's Honda out of the mud. Well, fast forward a little bit, my truck is stuck in the mud now. (laughs) So I got her Honda and my truck stuck in the mud. I'll fast forward a little bit further. Three days later, Amy's Honda and my truck are still stuck in the mud. So here's the deal. All of my resources were exhausted. I called a friend who knew somebody who worked for the Rockwall Fire Department. And they showed up with this massive fire truck. And they pulled way over into a parking lot. They had a winch, and they brought it all the way out. And they got Amy's car and, like, a knife going through hot butter. I mean, just lifted that thing out. And then they got my truck and lifted that thing out. And I just stood there in about, you know, two minutes. They had done what had taken me three days not to do. And I think so often in our walk with Jesus, we just spend all of this effort and time trying to do stuff in our own strength and we're standing at the end of the day just stuck. And prayer is calling on the one who's got the resources that we don't have but that we desperately need. Prayer is just saying, God, I've got to depend on you. Folks, that's what faithful ministry looks like. It's also what it looks like to be a faithful Christian. It's what it looks like to pray just to live a life that is dependent on God's resources and not our own. Amen? I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, let me just tell you, the the great hope of Scripture is that those who are far from God can be brought near to God. And if you are here today, and maybe this is your first time ever to be in a church, But you say, I'd I'd like to have Christ in you, the hope of glory. We would love to talk with you about how to do that. At the end of the service, you can walk out the the lobby. There will be decision prayer partners. They're wearing badges so you can identify them. And they would love to sit down and talk with you about how Jesus can be Lord of your life. If you're here today and you're a believer, 
then let's seek to have a faithful ministry together. Amen? And let's ask for the Lord's help in it. Father, we, we are dependent upon you. God, I don't have what it takes. Our pastors don't have what it takes. Our ministerial staff, our deacons, our members, none of us. Lord, we, we don't have what it takes, but we know you do. So keep us humble and dependent on you. Lord, do amongst us what only you can do, not for our glory, but for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.